As a candidate running unopposed for the state Senate of Oregon from a Portland district, Lou Frederick stands to be one of the most, if not the most, influential black politicians in the state of Oregon, which makes him one of the most influential black politicians in this country. I wouldn't normally use the qualifier black, but Lou is one of two elected officials in the state legislature who are black, and that characteristic is particularly meaningful, especially in this day and age as we consider the direction of society and the politicians who want to direct it. He's been active in politics his whole life and active in the politics of Oregon, and apropos of this podcast, Oregon Systems of Education, for decades. I had a whole lot of questions for Lou, like what's it like to be one of two black politicians in state government? Speaking of government, how is public education even funded? What's the U.S. Department of Education and why is it regularly under attack? What's the nature of the political divide on issues of education funding? Listen to us get into this and much more as I talk with Oregon State Representative and soon-to-be state senator from the great state of Oregon, Lou Frederick. Welcome to The Crush. Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, college admissions counselor with a million burning questions about college and college admissions. And today we talk about the politics of education in Oregon with a longtime friend of my family's, Lou Frederick. Lou has a really fascinating personal history, which we discuss, including being a close friend of Martin Luther King's kids growing up in Atlanta. And then about halfway through the conversation, we get into some specifics about education and the politics that envelop it. I'm not going to say too much here and uh, just let the interview speak for itself. And what he has to say comes from a deep personal history with the civil rights movement in this country. And one of the cornerstones of civil rights has been education. I love this talk with Lou, which I had with him from his office in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Well, hello there, sir. How are you? I'm hanging in How there. Are How are you doing? I am doing all right. So you're in the middle of a campaign. I am. What are you running it for? It is a uh, running for the state senate for uh, District 22 in Portland, and um, District 22 is north and northeast Portland. Um, my legislative district. I've been a state legislator for uh, since 2009. Uh, my legislative district is the smallest in the state. Uh, because it's so concentrated with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Senate district is significantly larger, and it, it encompasses two legislative districts. And the Senate district uh, includes uh, all of the airports for, the port, uh, for Portland. Uh, it includes the two of the major freeways. It has the, the western boundary is the Willamette River, and the northern boundary is the Columbia River. The southern boundary is the, is the freeway I-84, which is one of the main arterials and into and out of the state and the north and then it has a uh, both the interstate 5 and i-205 in it and all of the uh airport and port of portland industrial area uh basically anything east of the willamette river so it's a pretty good pretty good sized district uh twice as many people as my legislative district but about uh at least another uh half uh, to a third um, more more space so do you have people saying that once you win and, you know, the airport does become part of, of, of your Senate district that you represent, you know, that, that if they contribute to your campaign, that you will somehow find a way to get them a piece of the old carpet from the airport? 
<laughs> no, I haven't had, had, had anyone mention that, and I think. And even if they, even if they did, I, you probably wouldn't say it. I, I believe that would be uh, would, what's the word? Wouldn't be able to do much for them. Yeah. No, okay. wouldn't be able to do much for them. I'm afraid. So that's <laughs> the way that goes. Well, if you happen to come across any, let me know. Um, just that you know, there's no, there's no sort of kickback thing happening here. I just, I'm just. You know, well, you got to, you got to, you got. You're going to have to explain why anyone would want the old carpet for the airport. It's iconic, man. You know, my cousin Brian works for the Port of Portland, as you may know, and uh, there was a memo sent around to the employees of of the uh, at the airport saying, "Don't even touch this stuff." You know, it's it, we'll we'll kill you if you try. Um, it's like uh, it, it's like you know, I don't know. It was it, you know as hot as Bitcoin there for a little while, I think. Well, and you know, it actually managed to be as as silly as it was. It actually managed to be the officially grand um, parade, the the, the, uh, the head of the grand parade here, one of the parades here. Uh, right. The carpet was the was the the, the leadoff item for the grand parade because it was so iconic. Portlandia imitating life or life imitating Portlandia, who's to say? But yes, a piece of the carpet was the grand marshal of a friggin' parade in Portland. Grand marshal. Yeah, amazing. Portland, well, as you know, Portland, I think actually uh, Portlandia is just only often often only a slight exaggeration of what we deal with. Uh, People get very upset with it. I, I... can't get particularly upset with it or, or take it i can't certainly can't take it seriously uh you're not supposed to but it is it is interesting to see the impact that that has had one of the strangest things i ran into was uh flying back from washington dc from dallas airport one one uh, last year and uh in the trays for the for the tsa um the, 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 they had a portlandia ad at the bottom of the tray <laughs> and still they're looking at it and, and they were and every every tray had somebody had taken a piece of uh, portlandia ad and placed it and, and stuck it to the bottom of the tray at the portland scary. airport no at the at the dulles at the airport, dulles airport. okay <laughs> good lord well this is you know i mean it, portland couldn't be hotter uh you know the memories of tom mccall encouraging people to visit but not stay um, and, and it's, it's, a you know, I, I left and, and, and kind of didn't, didn't turn back, uh, not for any particular reason or another, but, um, it's a different city than the one I, I, I knew when I sort of first decided to take off around 1998 or so, uh, it's changed a lot. You know, one of the things that, uh, I have noticed about it and it's, you know, it, it's a criticism that's emerged recently in an era of heightened racial awareness that it's a pretty white city. Lou, there are a lot of white <laughs> yeah. people there. There are a lot of not white people there, but there are a lot of white people there. And it's always been pretty white, but the city center now is even is even whiter than it used to be with uh, rents going up and folks being uh, sort of ha- having to look outside, you know, the sort of city limits. As I referred, referred to it as kind of like a Manhattanization of Portland. And I wonder, you know, if, if, if I may identify the fact that you are one of, I believe, two african-american elected officials in the state legislature right how, right. how, how uh, has this issue been you know bit, how, how have you found your own way to sort of uh to look at identify address and, and and discuss and work towards perhaps you know rectifying this if you feel like that's the way it needs to go well <laughs> you, you you're dealing with um yeah you're you're absolutely correct uh i am one of two 
uh, African-Americans in the state legislature. Uh, uh, Senator Jackie Winters is from Salem. Uh, she's been there a while and uh, is doing very well. And she's uh, a Republican. And, and she's a Republican. I, I guess uh, more classify her as a, um, one of the moderate Republicans. We are dealing with um, a couple of things. Jokingly, I refer to myself as the Black Caucus for the Oregon House of Representatives <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah. um, and I've had to, unfortunately, I've had to mention that in situations where people were trying to um, use their, uh, to try, trying to use whatever code words they possibly could to, to talk about uh, African Americans um, in ways that were, that, you know, get people pretty well riled up, or at least they believe that somehow they, by, by saying certain things, they've now um, managed to touch upon the the official code words that they can't be criticized for. So, if somebody says some, something to me about being uh, one of the uh, someone who is uh, at risk or one of the minority kids or something like that, uh, my hackles go up because mm. uh, I, I'm really tired of folks deciding to use um, our my my kids and, and and other kids as a shield for programs that do not actually help them, but act very paternalistically mm-hmm. about what they're supposed to be doing. So that's one of the issues that I, that I run into. That's a general issue, actually, because the paternalism is pretty strong, not just here across the country, clearly, but also in, in Oregon. And Oregon's own history is not something anyone should be particularly uh, pleased with. It has, uh, it has had some significant problems over the years. Uh, and the, um, and so that, that's, that's one of the pro- that's one of the issues. I mean, it started, Oregon started as a state that was not going to allow African Americans or non-white to stay more than 24 hours in one spot. Whenever you tell that to someone from a, uh, some other state, they look at you and they go, you're kidding. No one would do that. Well, yes, they would and they did. And that was the case for a number of years. And part of it was basically to try to avoid having uh, free African Americans, free blacks in the state. Uh, in my view, it was done so that um, they would African American free blacks would no longer have um, be competing against whites who were not as skilled in uh, horseshoeing and um, and in carpentry and in other things that were important at that time. So that's the kind of history the state has, and and uh, we we still had um, well, we still had on the books. Uh, that officially in the, in the Constitution, although it had been been rendered uh, completely ineffective, but or officially ineffective, uh, we still had it on the books until the early 2000s when they, when we had a vote in the state and uh, and one third of the folks in the state voted voted to keep it in. So okay. um, so that's that's one of the issues that we've dealt with over the years. But we've had much much more much more uh, insidious uh, issues there where you have uh, significant redlining or the inability for folks to get to get jobs in certain places um, to be in fact pushed out uh, we had we had a big change take place during World War two where uh, a lot of folks came into the city to work on the Liberty ship the Kaiser shipyard and they were housed in a, a, a specially built uh, housing development up in North Portland near the river uh, and at a, at a and, and when the, when the shipyards were over, the uh, the city fathers, literally the city fathers, um, tried to make sure that the folks who were, especially the black folks who were living in the shipyards, they tried to get them to leave and to move. 
And many of the folks had come up from Mississippi and Louisiana, and they had, had a, found that they could actually work and live up here and enjoy themselves, so they were staying. That did not work very well. Then there was a, one Sunday, there was a, a flood that took place that, that took out that housing development. And this is the, and and many, this is the neighborhood of Vanport. Vanport, that's right. It was called Vanport at the time. And uh, so many of those folks uh, had to find someplace to live, and they had already put up signs around the city saying that they would not rent to black folks. So folks still stayed. And that's where we have the majority. That's where we got the majority. So this is in the this is in the DNA of 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 the city, right? It's in the DNA of the city, and 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 you have the other aspect, of course, is you have a significant group of folks from uh, whites from the south who moved into the state, and they did not want to compete. And that was part of the whole compromise was to not allow it to be a slave state, but also not allow it to have free blacks in the state. So they uh, that was way back when. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that 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 is that has continued. There, you still have that kind of a, a situation. So you had for many years, and in fact, probably you still have on the books if you go to look at some of the uh, the covenants for real estate in the state, both in the city and and rest of the state. You probably find in, in the covenants, the original covenants, saying that you could not sell them to non-whites. And that did not just mean black. That meant. Um, Chinese, that meant Native Americans. Right. Um, there were few Hispanics at the time, but probably them as well. And then, uh, and then, of course, Oregon is noted for having a Ku Klux Klan back in the 20s and 30s that um, spent its time attacking the Catholics in the state. So um, there, there's always, there's always, we've always had somebody searching for someone to be upset with. Yeah. And uh, and and that that has happened uh, no matter what color. It's a there's an old um, old uh, uh, play out of England called "If There Weren't Any Blacks, We'd Have to Invent Them," uh, and it's it's very appropriate for this kind of um, this kind of environment that has taken place here. Now, having said that, uh, the fact is, I have been here since 1974 uh, when I came, uh, and and I have uh, I I've had a few incidents take place, um, notably with uh, with law enforcement, but I have had generally a really good responses in all the I've been to all 36 counties in the state and generally had pretty good responses in all 36 counties with you know a few exceptions um, that have not been particularly good but that's uh, not a surprise and for me um, the, the exceptions have been uh, a lot a lot fewer kinds of problems than I have from where I where I went to high school, which was Atlanta, Georgia, or elementary school. Yeah, and you've got some some. I mean, that speaking of Indiana. right, speaking of DNA, you do have some some pretty fascinating. Uh, I have one in mind in particular characters in in your own history uh, that uh, must very much have informed the the Lou that we know today. Yeah, I've been, I have um, not quite um, uh, done a Forrest Gump kind of thing through the through the <laughs> historic landscape, but. Uh, I, I, I managed to be in situations and, and be uh, directly involved uh, with uh, the civil rights movement, um, with the Vietnam War movement, um, with um, a number of other political uh, situations over over the years. Um, I, my first remember tear gas when I was about eight or nine years old um, because of, of demonstrations that were taking place in and around uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, and my my father was a professor at that time at Southern University. And then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and went from the frying pan into the fire. 
and uh, because we we demonst- we were in demonstrations every other weekend or so. And let me before With we all be- before we lose this, I want to make sure that I I note the fact that your your father's discipline at Southern was. Uh, he's a mycologist. He studies slime molds, wheat rust, and Dutch elm disease. Yeah, your dad was a, myco- a mycologist. I think that's fascinating. He's one of the leading uh, experts on slime molds in the in the world. Outstanding. Um, and he's still still doing research at oh, ninety three. He's he's not teaching this year, but uh, he's still doing research. Still has his lab going at Tuskegee. He's now back at Tuskegee University, where okay. he graduated from. Okay. Um, but uh, and so you uh, you, so, you grew up and you and when you moved to, to to Atlanta, you had an interesting neighbor. My next door neighbor was a fellow named Horace Mann Bond. His son was living with him when we moved in, uh-huh. and his son was Julian Bond. Uh-huh. Uh, and so got a chance to, to know. In fact, my first political campaign, official political campaign, was handing out uh, leaflets for Julian Bond. My my playmates at, at, from high school, elementary school, were uh, Marty Yoland and Dexter King. Uh, went over to their house a couple of, couple of times, and Dr. King basically was the dad of my playmates. He was uh, an icon at that time, even then, but he was also telling us to quit running through the house and to, and to turn down the music. And most of the time he told me just to sit. Would you please just sit down? You're, you're moving around too much. So <laughs> that's kind of the thing that I did. You know, it was, uh, it was a, a situation where you would, March and um, there were there were a couple of times we'd, we'd be marching and on either side of the street we'd have people in in clan uh, robes and uh, you know white robes and, and hoods and things and people yelling and throwing things at us and uh, being unpleasant and I I was the last part of the the last part of the, of the, the desegregation plan that came out of the in Atlanta schools and I um, had several people yelling at me when I walked into school my first day there. Uh, so, uh, and then I had to deal with white gangs um, attacking me, and, and a number of other things taking place while I was in in high school in Atlanta. Uh, so I've had. Uh, did you I've had get a, into a some? A, did you get into some fist fights? Yeah, I, I usually lost those fist fights. Did you really? I was about four four foot ten at the time, and uh, and and skinny as a rail. Uh, but a couple of them that I won, um, and. That um, that sort of turned the table, and also I uh, because I had to because I won a couple of them. That was noted by the um, administration that there was in fact a fight, um, and so then from then on I was there, there was an, an attempt to avoid being in situations where where I might win the fight, and so they they they, they stayed away from a lot of things. Right. Um, so I didn't have to worry about a few of those things. Man. Um, and then let me let me ask if I can jump ahead and ask how you found your way to Portland. Of well, all places. Portland, there are several several reasons. Actually, I can officially say I was, I'm a Northwesterner because I was born in Pullman, Washington. My father was getting a PhD at Washington State University, or got his PhD at Washington State University, and I was born there. So I can I can say that I'm from the Northwest, mm-hmm. uh, but I had not really lived here for any length of time. Um, and then at a certain point, um, when we moved, uh, when I, when I was looking at a place to live, um, I had several reasons for coming out to the Northwest. Um, I had met three of the three, four political, um, uh, folks in Washington, D.C. and in other situations, uh, Tom McCall, Mark Hatfield, Bob Packwood, and Wayne Morse. 
and uh, noticed that all that three of those four were uh, are, were Republicans. Uh, one was a Republican and switched to Democrat. But um, the uh, I had I managed to um, to meet all of them while I was uh, when I was in college and before college, just before college as well, and felt um, gee, these are, this is a nice this is a good group of people, thoughtful, sense of hope. Uh, that's where I wanted what I wanted to be part of. I graduated from Earlham College, the small Quaker school in Indiana that mm-hmm. I love dearly. Um, and uh, so I, but I was, I went back home to Atlanta and discovered that there were several things that I just simply couldn't deal with in Atlanta. One was the fact that if I, if I walked into a room to talk with someone about a job, I was identified primarily uh, by by my dad. And I love my dad dearly, but I really wanted to have my own space I th- there. I, I know the feeling. Yes, yes, you would. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so you know, you do understand that well. But the other <laughs> thing for me was, uh, and I'm not sure that you have to have to, you've had to deal with this, but there was also a uh, a feeling that I I I, I encountered um, based on. On, um, on other other factors, where I went to college, uh, because it, it, there was a real tight sort of group. If you weren't in particular colleges, uh, didn't go to particular colleges, or weren't in particular fraternities, or or uh, didn't go to didn't attend certain churches, uh, there was a uh, there was a sort of a, a layered approach or a ceiling uh, step step approach in order to get into certain areas and I really didn't need need that. What were those said, what were some of those colleges at that time? Well, um I mean the college that, that was most important in Atlanta was Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh if I, I I had I took some classes at Morehouse when I was in uh when I was in high school. I mean when I was in college, but I didn't graduate from Morehouse. And I ended up talking with several people before I left Atlanta uh about the fact uh, that that there was an expectation that I could go only so far. Uh, as a result of that, and so I said, I really don't need that, and I just um, could move and, and find another place, and and, and I and I did. Um, I also was involved in theater. Um, uh, I came out to join the theater company in in Portland. Uh, got I did join the, the company and was in that company for about a year and a half. Um, it was uh, the, the the fact was that the theater was. Uh, uh, you 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 couldn't feed yourself out here doing theater. You had to do other things, and so I tried to figure out what that was going to be for me, and ended up teaching for two years, and then going into television and radio uh, for 17 years. Uh, and uh, and I you know did pretty well with with the with all of them, but uh, had a good time as the science primarily first the education reporter and then the science and general assignment reporter, politics primarily, but mostly science. Um, for about 14 of the 17 years I was a reporter. And so there is this through line, you know, and the fact that you mentioned, probably not by accident, the fact that you, you know, had met some pretty key political figures representing Oregon, that politics has yeah. been this through line for you. You know, have you always known that this is kind of where you would end up? No, I, what, I, what I knew was that I was told by my father and, by doc, and my mother and by Dr. King and other adults in my community that the expectation was that I was supposed to make things better for the people who came after me. And it really, that was a, that was a, a mantra that was very clear. And so the, the real key there was to try to figure out how that was going to happen. Now, 
I could have done that by staying uh, in science on the bench, working on mitochondria and, and cancer work on yeast. And um, I could have done that that way, or I could have done that as a, as a neurophysiologist or as a post office employee uh, or as a teacher. Um, there were a number of possible ways for me to do that, uh, but the, the goal was to, to really have an impact. And the political thing I've been lucky enough to work with, um, it has been, it's enjoyable. Uh, I actually get some things accomplished that I think are important. Uh, and so I, I like that. But, uh, and my, my wife is convinced that in fact I said, I don't remember saying this, that I wanted to be in media, I wanted to teach, and I wanted to do some things in terms of politics. Well, apparently I've done all those at this point. I still want to go back to teaching at some point. But, uh, but that's, that's what I've wanted, that's what I've been able to do. Uh, I like talking with people. I like listening to people. That's the main key thing for me. And finding out what, what perhaps I can do because of um, the fact that I listen to where some resources are and point people towards those resources. Um, and, and sometimes the resources are themselves or, or, or other people, but I really like the ability to do that. Well, like you, I count myself fortunate to have uh, been able to... Uh meet, get to know and work with some people early on in my life to in, in, encourage the, a lot of those same goals. And you were one of them, you know, and we met uh, when I was in high school and you were working with the um, with the Portland Public Schools and with the school board. And, you know, that was sort of the first time I, I, I think I understood that there was this thing called sort of activism. I guess I'd been to some you know, a few random protests with my parents, if you can believe it or not. Uh, you know, wait, I think I'm was, shocked. Yeah, I know. I think the I think the first one was actually that they were going to put a McDonald's right behind our house on 39th, you know, and my parents dragged me to some pro some you know, picket line protest as kids. And I was like, this is why my, McDonald's is delicious. I don't want to be here. What's the problem? Um, you know, but <laughs> it, it, eventually I, you know, I think I grew up and I got it, but, um, this was really, you know, the, the sort of po the first point for me where I sort of engaged in uh, in any kind of sort of pol political sort of thought and action was was right as the as the the um, public schools that I had been going to, you know, my whole life were, were really experiencing some deep uh, uh, funding cuts. They had experience. I mean, I, this was, I think, probably, this had to have been in I don't know ninety seven or ninety eight when we, when when you and I first really started to talk together, uh, along with representatives from all of the other Portland public schools. But um, you know, there's the you know anybody that's that's old enough and remembers in nineteen ninety, I believe, Measure Five was you know sort of the first big blow to uh, funding for education in Portland when when public when when taxes were reduced for the purposes of funding education. And so this is the this is a big question. This is a, a lot of questions for you on this topic um, about funding education, and particularly you know this podcast is about higher education, and it's a theme that's continued to, to emerge over and over again. Uh, you know, when I talk to to uh, uh, some some of my guests, that you know that, that there have been a, a raft of issues that have arisen as a result of the ongoing defunding of higher education in the country, 
And so I, I think I want to ask you in particular, uh, I have a lot of things, but first of all, let's, let me, let's help define the issue. How are school systems funded and how are universities funded? And I want to talk specifically about public universities. How are they funded and how is that different from the way that maybe, you know, K through 12 is funded? Well, uh, yeah, we, and, and that's, that's, that's changing. That's changed significantly over the last five years here in Oregon. Um, We've had uh, a change to a uh, a board, an individual board situation, rather than a general um, university system uh, that we used to have. So now we have uh, boards that are um, controlling things: University of Oregon, Oregon State, uh, Portland State, and then um, boards as well as some of the the smaller state institutions uh, in in Oregon. And that's that's due to the fact that we've had we had on. Um, a measure five and a number of other things come through over the last um, 25 years where we haven't seen, uh, we've seen a, a, a gradual and sometimes really, sometimes a very steep decrease in the state funding for various, for the public institutions, especially the college universities, uh, relying a lot more on tuition rather than on, um, on state support so and that's that, put so a, is it safe then can we it, can we say that this is the, the because tuition the university system has become more dependent on tuition that this contributes to the rise in, in in tuition rise in tuition and uh and frankly lower lower services that have been available as well um so that's been that's been one of the one of the issues that we keep running into is the fact that um the um we know that there are uh folks who are who are who Really need the support uh, for for the, the uh, for going to college, but in fact, because tuition has gone up so so much, they've struggled, and we haven't, and we've also been unable to really hang on to a lot of regular and good um, professors uh, staff because we have been paying so so little compared to other states. Now we have the advantage, and 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 it's a little bit. Um, a little bit uh, presumptuous of us, but I think it's actually true. We have the advantage of being Oregon, and there are a lot of a lot of uh, people who would like to live in the state, especially a lot of academics. So we're able to to uh, use that as one of our leverage points as well. But we have not been able to keep up with uh, a lot of things. With Oregon State University and University of Oregon, but especially Oregon State, has managed to bring in quite a bit of. National Science Foundation and other federal funding. TSU is Portland State has done a number a good job on that. University of Oregon is, is really well known for some of the kind of research that it does down there. So that helps quite quite a bit. The other schools not as much, although um, Oregon Institute of Technology, they call themselves Oregon Tech now, has a, 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 a regular agreement with some of the uh, major uh, high tech firms and programs down in. in Central California and San Francisco area. Uh, so there are some there are some exceptions to the rule, but we really haven't been able to sustain uh, a solid uh, state support over the last 25 years. And so that's what we're starting to try to figure out how to deal with that. Added to that, we have a very strong but um, continually challenged community college system, 17 community colleges that are really doing extremely well with the work that they get a chance to do, but they are, they've reached capacity on, on both uh, facilities and, uh, and teaching staff. And so we have, to, we have to struggle with that as well. 
the question I have is, well, let me ask first, you know, what's your sense of how much the uh, of of the university system in Portland, the, the public university system is actually funded by the state? I think that, you know, a figure that somebody had told me earlier in, 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 in another interview that the University of Oregon in particular was receiving about 5% of its budget from the state. That, would, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all, but that's, yeah. that's the number that you're talking about. So what are the, you know, what, what, what are the ideological divides here, you know, when you're talking across uh, political parties and trying to achieve consensus on, on supporting these systems? And what have been the barriers to getting our assuming you're you're interested in in these systems receiving more funding what have been some of the barriers that you've encountered to to sort of getting there i think that we have well we have a barrier that that's hard to hard to address uh and and let, I'll, I'll put it this way when i was in college um you could work for the summer and pay for your tuition for that next year um almost impossible to do right now you could find a summer job that was not a, not something that was super professional kind of thing, but you could find a summer job and pay for, if not the whole tuition, a significant portion of the tuition. You can't do that right now. And unfortunately, what's happened is many of the people making decisions about college uh, finances uh, were alive and grew up during that, during that time when a college, a summer job did that. And they don't understand the kind of impact that the economy has had uh, on that on that ability right now. So they assume that well, you just all you've got to do is just go to go and get some work on, on during the summer, and you'll be just fine. Well, that's just simply not the case anymore. So that's a it's not a philosophical thing; it's a sort of historical context that gets in the way of of some real decision making on how much it really costs. Now, another aspect of that is. The, the belief that um, everyone can get into college easily because they have every, there's so many, there are there are uh, loans and everything else out there and it's going to be just easy to do that. Well, it's not that easy, and uh, and there are people who are, who continue to struggle to get into college. But again, the those folks making those decisions historically don't understand that because they were they had a different experience when they were coming through the whole system. The other factor for me is that I think we have had a an attempt philosophically to change the idea that we are supposed to have uh, experts that we are that the college is to create experts in fields um, rather than uh, to to create a generalist uh, or, or, or a number of different kinds of people who can who can look at a, a comprehensive education in a way that's uh, that's different that's important. That, I think, is a struggle that um, I'm not sure how we get to, but we have that at the elementary and the high school level where you have folks saying, we, we, want, to, we want engineers. Well, we don't want just engineers. I want to have artists. I want to have sociologists and social workers. I want to have people who, can, who are looking at uh, the best way to feed people uh, and, and, and how, to, how to make sure that when you go into uh, that, your, your hospitality of one form or another is is used. I want a range of folks in my community, not just a single group of people. And that's a philosophical change that's taken place over the years that we still haven't addressed. So you've we got people are, who are right. So you've got people who are who who have a sort of a fundamental sort of disagreement about the entire purpose of college. 
and right, saying right. that, so, saying that yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to fund it, but you know, I'm not going to fund any of this, you know, any of this, uh, this nonsense art stuff that's no good for anybody. It's got to be engineering or, or nothing. Well, even it's even it's even worse than that. There are folks who will say, in my view, it's worse than that. There are folks who will say, I'm not going to fund anything that is not um, uh, that that I can't see an immediate benefit from. That you know you. Oh, you, you're studying fruit flies. Why in the world would you study fruit flies? Well, because the genetics of fruit flies is how we know our genetics. But uh, there are people who will, who I have heard say, we don't need to study fruit flies. We don't need to study zebra fish. We don't need to study the way that um, that people respond to a particular psychological impact or or other things. They 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 cannot see an immediate need for those kinds of things and so they dismiss it as something that they don't want to they don't want to fund or even worse how much money is is somebody going to make in this uh in this particular career that that is the way that you determine the uh the value of a program by how much money the graduates make yeah Um, i mean these are these are complex issues right i mean and and it takes uh, a lot i think it's it's not an immediate uh, you know, the, I think some of those arguments are are, are sort of easier to understand than the, than some of the more complicated ones about why you might study fruit flies. Arguably, uh, an, an an education might help you do that. So perhaps the, you know the 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 absence of education among some is is perpetuating the problem when they get elected to office. Um, but then you know there's a very cynical interpretation too about you know what what people really need to know. And I think you know I'm I'm happy to just I mean I I, I sort of I, I'm in this world and so I'm happy to trust these scientists. <laughs> you know that they are doing good things with with the money because I, they know more about it than I do. But I think, and this happens at the federal level too, obviously a lot when it comes to climate change and stuff, that there's just so much skepticism about, you know, educated people and, you know, the, uh, the intelligentsia uh, who, are, who are studying things and, and they, people are, are, it seems, more willing than ever to just fundamentally challenge anything that they say rather than, you know, take them at their word because they're PhDs that have been studying this stuff for 40 and 50 years. You're right on target there. This is a kind of concern that I have as well, because I think that we have, we're making a mistake um, believing that we're going to follow a system. There are several systems in the world that have attempted to do, uh, to, to just focus on certain things. And they are now moving away from focusing. The, the Japanese and the Chinese in particular are now trying to find a way to have comprehensive education in their system so that they have engineers who understand the impact of their 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 plans, their proposals on the society in general. Um, those kinds of things are, are things I think are important. And, and, and meanwhile, uh, and, we're trying to reform our system to to keep up with or, or sort of, quote unquote, beat them. But they're reforming their systems to look more like ours. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I think I've just gone through the looking glass, Lou. I don't know what. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, let me ask you this: What is the uh, what's the point of the United States Department of Education, and why is it always on the short list of agencies that people want to abolish? Who of you know when you talk about those kind of people that you know like Rand Paul that just want to abolish federal agencies? Well, there are two there are two answers to that. I mean, those are those are two very importantly and different different questions the um because what what you run what you run into quite frankly is um let's let me let me just sort of go through this 
the Department of Education, I think, is an appropriate uh, kind of agency to try to recognize that there is uh, a value for federal uh, support for education in one form or another, and to try to make sure that 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 the the kinds of things that are available are in fact equitable uh, across geographic areas as well as racial and economic and ethnic groups. That's the the goal and the appropriate approach that I think the Department of Education has. Now, why is Rand why is Rand Paul and others? because the department has actually done things regarding equity. They do not want to see that kind of an equity take place. And so they've spent a great deal of time trying to dismantle um, any sort of thing that might have uh, even the semblance of equity and, and would prefer that, in fact, it either be handed over to uh, the market, which is not equitable, and, and so they would not have to worry about that. Or, or just be dismantled completely so that there's not anyone anyone checking on to see how well they're actually handling things. So this goes back, I, mean, I mentioned the whole desegregation thing. For me, this goes back to that, to those times when uh, it was very clear that we had separate but unequal uh, facilities. I mean, I actually, in, in my family, we go back to the fact that my grandfather was teaching kids, uh, sharecropper kids to read in Mississippi and had some problems with that and decided to move to Missouri, actually moved to either Missouri or California because he knew that they could get uh, books for for his kids and for sharecropper kids, black sharecropper kids in Missouri. They were, they were the books that had been thrown away by the white schools, but they were at least books. This is the kind of thing that was going on for a long time and was taking place not just in the South. I mean, I was in Boston uh, back in um, in the mid-'80s. I had ended up visiting a school that apparently had been visited by a couple other people in the past, and they wrote about it. I didn't realize that. You know, they, they had... Kent, this was a, a school that was predominantly black kids. The kindergarten kids were in the basement. Their, their classroom was in the basement of the school. But when I went to visit, because my son was, was, uh, was going into um, kindergarten at the time, when I went to visit, uh, I looked at the... Went, went to the I couldn't find them. The class. I mean, I found the room, but the class was closed up and locked up. I said, oh, did they not have kindergarten today? And they said, somebody said, oh, no, they're upstairs in the library. Well, I went up to the library, and I said, oh, it was good to have them in the library. And I asked the teacher why they were in the library. Were they going to be going back to the class? Because I'd like to see it. She said, oh, we can't go back to the class because uh, they have to clean it up again. And what was happening was there was a regular sewer overflow that went into their classroom. And uh, this was in Boston. And uh, they went regularly into their classroom and flooded out there uh, for various uh, on a on a regular basis because they had um, they they were not they didn't care much about what was going on with that particular school and those particular kids. So you have this taking place across the, across the country, and and education is an important factor. It's a, it's a hugely important factor in terms of how you can move along out of a particular caste system. And not just be the exception to the rule, but in fact have other people get through. The rural communities suffer from this, this kind of thing as well. And, and so when you're both rural and, and minority, uh, it's a double whammy on this, on this kind of thing. So you're not going to get the same level of opportunity because of, of certain things. And the Department of Education helps at least track that, if nothing else. And then if in, in the case of finding egregious, egregious situations, do something about it. What is the 
the common core and what's Oregon's role with it? Oh, oh boy. Well, you see, now, Devin, you're going to get, you're, you're going to get people calling in about this because, uh, I happen to not be particularly, um, enamored of the If I get people core, calling for- in about this, then, then that will have been worth it because, because people don't really call in. Lube. So, so this will right, be, so I'll, however, I'll, I'll be pleased. What if, you know, any kind of feedback is good. So especially if it's a contentious well, issue. So yeah, say some real controversial this, stuff. This is really controversial because what, what happens is you have a proposal, an idea that sounds very, very good that you would have a basic set of, of uh, things, a set of knowledge that uh, all kids would have across the country uh, and that that by doing that you would that would be um, the the floor of the knowledge that everyone has in the country. That makes a lot of sense. Um, the problem is the the way it's been implemented and the way it was what was described as as what everyone should know and how they should know it. And so what we've had is uh, some some poorly uh, designed uh, things, in my view. Uh, in terms of, of what was what was designed as what everyone should know, um, poorly designed in one way, and this goes into a long a long long rant on my part, but it, it's poorly designed because in many cases it's developmentally inappropriate. There are certain things that certain kid that kids at certain ages generally know and are able to do, and they sometimes it takes them a while to get to it at other ages. So if you if you set it up so that you are designing a system where um, you're expecting kids to swim a 50-yard uh, a, a freestyle and you, 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 you go back in time and say, well, then they should be able to swim this amount when they are, are two years old or, or five years old or nine years old in order for them to reach this particular level when they are 18 or 20. You can do that, but you're not really paying attention to what the individual needs are for the kid. And that's what's happened. The Common Core has, has uh, in many cases, uh, been used as a, a way of supposedly uh, finding out where kids need to be, but not understanding that there's a, a both a uh, developmental growth and an individual growth that takes place as well. So what you have are some... Interesting ideas um, that, you know, you should be learning certain things at, at, at particular times, but it's not everyone has to learn this right now. And in this way, that is where you get the objection from uh, people on a regular basis, because we're you're trying to put uh, students on an industrial line and say that, oh, this is this is what they're supposed to do. And if they don't get that, then you end up with the rejects and the rejects get put someplace. Um, and uh, and what is that place, and, and how does that then help them or the or the community and, uh, that they're a part of? Uh, those are the questions that we really haven't been answered well. With people have tried, attempted to answer them, but they haven't answered them well. And both parents and students and teachers uh, and administrators and others across the country have seen that. Now you have some people who believe that the Common Core is some grand conspiracy to. to Make everyone think the same. Well, it's not, but it is. It is a uh, that's part of the part of the um, the conspiratorial uh, situation, and and it's also it also fits into the into the the timeline that says that uh, the a group of oligarchs are telling everyone what they should learn and trying to place them into a particular 
system. Um, so you can go into that conspiracy theory thing if you want. That's not where I am on it. I'm, I'm concerned that it's just simply not effective in doing what we want it to do. And what we want it to do is to create a culture and a community that is going to be effective in the future. And if, if you're deciding that the way that you do that, and this is the other problem with the Common Core, is by testing people constantly and determining whether they are moving along at the right pace, and you spend most of your time focusing on the test rather than on the on the ideas and the uh, the, the ability for, for folks to work. Well, and you use the you, you, you use the word effective, you know, and that you want people to become members of you know effective members of society, and that that suggests really when you I mean that they should be effective in infinite possible variations of effectiveness. Yeah, and so yes. I mean, is this is this is this just an impossible task? Oh, no, I, I think, well, you know, you, you'd think that it would be impossible, except that we have examples where it works. I mean, this is the thing that, that uh, people are talking about constantly, and, and they're going, I'm sure that somebody's going to say, well, you know, this is a, uh, a really uh, homogeneous um, community, but Finland keeps getting pushed up in front of people saying, well, you know, they do not have... They, they have a number of things that we do not have here, and we have a number of things that they do not have there. One of the things we do, we have that they do not have is this, this in, uh, constant competition approach. Um, and, and the idea that, that somehow privatization is the, the way to make things better. Yeah, well, comp- competition that, is America, Lou. Get used to it, man. I, I understand that. And, that, and that's, and, but, but what <laughs> happens is they, they do, they do extremely well. They start working with kids early on. Um, they have teachers who are, who are supported as professionals, not, um, not, not, um, degraded as just, uh, greater, larger, um, uh, uh, babysitters, uh, who, who just really couldn't do well in the regular community. So we've got them as teachers now. Um, that's the, that's the, the theme and the, the, the sort of historical, um, background for a lot of some of the things that you hear about regarding teaching. Yeah. Um, so Finland has a very different approach to that, but not just Finland. If you look around the United States and you look at look at successful schools, and especially the private, many of the private schools, they don't do the Common Core. They have a they have, they may look at some things, but they also make it a point of working with individual kids, figuring out where they are individually, mm-hmm. how to work with them. Uh, if you look at the at the at the schools that are in, that are truly successful, and that's what you should be doing. Um, you should be finding out how they work with with uh, students. And if and and in some cases, yes, there are some schools that are super competitive, and they and that seems to be that seems to work for a certain group of students. But if you know anything about kids or just our community, everyone does not address things in the same way. So it's really important to try to find a different way to work with them. Well, and being in college admissions, I can tell you, and I think listening to several dif- several of the guests I've had on so far, they can tell you that you know, uh, competition may produce certain results, but you know, uh, a lot of those results uh, can can be a, a mortgaged childhood and adolescence, and you know, severe anxiety and you know, uh, overwork and depression and uh, suicidal ideation and all kinds of things like that. And so, yeah, you might achieve success by some means. 
but uh, the costs are are woefully high, and there are a lot of people that are working to to help change our mind about this. And I, I was reminded, as you mentioned, Finland. There was an article that I had found. It's called "This Is Why Finland Has the Best Schools," and occurred. It came out in the Sydney Morning Herald. I'll I'll link to it. Uh, Howard Gardner is a famous professor from from Harvard, the educational oh, yeah. school, and he 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 quotes. He, he's quoted here saying, "Learn from Finland, which has the most effective schools, and which does just about the opposite of what we are doing in the United States." One of the things that they say in this article that I thought was amazing that they let kids do. He, the author talks about how he had his kid in, in a, he was an American who had his kid in a finished school system. So one of the things that they did was they gave the, the, they took the kids into the forest, gave them a compass and says, see you later, you know, find your way out. Uh, I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine that happening uh, in the United States? I don't think so. I think the uh, litigiousness might, might make that a challenge as well. Um, but I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but I want, I have a couple things that I want to ask you. So I'm going to make you late for your next thing. Eric, am I going to make you late for your next thing? No, you're fine. Go ahead. All right, cool. Will making college free under Hillary Clinton's plan make a difference as you understand it? Um, this is a hot topic. It's something that she adopted from, you know, Bernie Sanders platform, it seems as a as a, you know, a, a consolation for for his bowing out finally, you know, and I've heard some some really interesting sort of thoughts and critiques about this. I wonder what you have to say about it. Well, I, I think that it's I think it's a great idea. If We can find a way to do it. I think that there are ways to do it. We, be, we need to begin recognizing that uh, everyone needs to come to the table and that it's that the, the enticement, the whole approach, the trickle-down theory, we know, we've tested it, we've now worked with it for 30 years, it doesn't work. So let's figure out a new approach. And I think that one of the things that was working was, uh, if not free, very inexpensive college was why we have the Silicon Valley, why we have the, um, the research triangle. Those folks who came into that situation, and, and, and Route 128, those folks who came into that, were there because they we, we had a storehouse of of good ideas and people with skills who could work with things and they got those by not by being mortgaged up to their their eyeballs in uh, in, in college in college fees but actually being able to get through college and get something done uh, I think that if we can find a way to do it that's what we need to do now you know in Oregon we managed to to do what we call Oregon Promise and Oregon Opportunity Grants, and, and at this particular point, it is possible for someone to not pay anything for community college at this point. Uh, Going and have two years, at least two years of of no pay, of not being having to pay anything out, and maybe even more um, because of the way that we handle that. I think that that'll make a big difference in the um, and the, the frankly the, the skills that are available. For, for for people in the community and the skills that are available for employers and ideas coming into the community. If you want to have people who are, are ready to go, then you have to make sure that they have the the time and the uh, the motivation to do it. And, and the motivation is not just how much money you're going to make. The motivation has to be um, has to be thought. It has to be has to be enjoyed. It has to be something that a place that you want to go. So I think that we need to find a way to, to do both what, what Bernie Sanders said and what Hillary Clinton is, is saying, um, and I think would have a huge difference. And for, for that matter, I think that her proposal regarding, for instance, the uh, historically black colleges and universities is one of those um, really extraordinary uh, ideas that would really make a big difference. Could you summarize that, that proposal? Well, uh, she basically says no one should have to take that alone. 
for for four-year uh, colleges and uh, and and investing some federal federal funds in uh, public uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, they're talking about uh, Pell funding for living expenses. I mean, she has a number of of ideas. Uh, I think that um, that you know that she's talking about dedicating a about I think it's twenty five billion dollars to provide support for for schools that um, that are doing uh, particularly serving low income low low middle class income folks. And so I think that's one of the examples of how we could really make a dent in a number of of the the uh, the problems we have with uh, high unemployment and in um, in communities that struggle right now. If you had those folks ready to take on jobs, ready to take on ideas, ready to, to become entrepreneurs and, and, and researchers and teachers and, and medical professionals, all of those things, as well as uh, plumbers and, uh, and mechanics and other things, uh, if you had that available, uh, I think we would have a, a huge change in just the economic status of a lot of those communities and make some real changes. So why do it this way instead of like forgiving debt instead? Why make it this way on the front end instead of saying, here, you guys choose, you guys, you know, because that's one of the arguments is that it might push, you know, costs up uh, at colleges. In fact, in the way that, you know, insurance prices have gone up because they know that, you know, people are, you know, or the, or the hospital bills have gone up because they know the insurance companies will pay for it. You know, that, that, that whole thing. Yeah, no doubt. And I have no problems with uh, forgiving debt. As well. Sure. I mean, actually, you know, college affordability in general is is like, I mean, I don't think anybody agrees that it, or would disagree that this it needs to be more affordable or however it's somehow become a, an item, you know, a football for the left to run with. And the right is somewhere not not really talking about this for some reason, even though it impacts everybody. But, you know, I'm just curious about the uh, the actual policy and, and, and whether, you know, that that's the best way to, to get at this. First of all. I can I pretty well guarantee you that all of the details Hillary Clinton has put together are, um, are are details right now that would have to be worked on, and I think that a combination of things regarding debt, uh, certainly dropping interest rates, uh, as as Elizabeth Warren has talked about, as well as you know some of these other things, I think all of these things should be put at least on the table and have people talking about and working with. I, don't anticipate all of them going through. I, I really think that it, that I'm very pleased to see that there, there's at least a discussion of them, and that's that's the key element there for me. And we've also got to recognize if we do these kinds of things, we also need to have some kind of uh, monitoring so we don't have the kind of greed approach that has taken place with um, with some of the medical folks with with a, with a number. I mean, as we saw with the banks. With uh, Wells Fargo Bank, or, or even for-profit colleges that were that were receiving, you know, the subsidies in the form exactly. of federal loans, and yeah, right. And the, and we saw them, we saw them do that. And and the, the see the thing is, uh, we have as a culture, we can't believe anybody would do something like that, but they obviously will. So we need to make set up a system to monitor it so that they don't. Are you? You know, since since this is sort of the, the the genesis of our relationship was was me being a student and 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 you know working with with me when I was a student. Are you still working with students? And have you seen them? Uh, you know, have you seen a, a change one way or another in terms of their their degree of you know political interest and activism and activity? Uh, and and how do you uh, or would you encourage more? 
students to 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 get involved and to get engaged uh, at the at the local level you don't have to be trying to run for president or or talking with presidential candidates to have an impact you have within uh any any state any jurisdiction you have school boards and you have city council and county commissions and uh and and water water boards and um you know water water soil and water district boards and things like that uh, they are all uh, all sorts of folks are there. Often they have money that people don't even realize that they have uh, that they're that they're using for various programs. And if you pay attention, decide to pay attention to any of them, it makes a huge difference. And if you have to, if you do it, and then are consistent in going back, it's not a matter of saying you should do this and I'm going to leave and you get it done. Uh, you have to be directly involved, otherwise people believe that you're just being a dilettante about it. Uh, but it is important to to constantly be talking with people, uh, not yelling at them. That's one thing. But talking with people about what's going on, that's the key element there as far as I'm concerned. So, yes, letters work, but probably more importantly, and voting work. You're 18, obviously. But more importantly is going in and talking with the the, uh, the leaders that you that you know that are in your community and telling them what you think about things. What about reducing the voting age to 16? Is there some sort of magic degree of wisdom that students gain in ages 17 and 18 that, that, that uh, justifies that? Yes. <laughs> I think 18, 18 works for me. Um, this is the old Mark Twain line about, about how his, his father was so dumb when, 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 when Mark Twain was, was 12 years old and Samuel Clemens was 12 years old and and it was amazing how much he had learned by the time Samuel Clemens had become 24. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, that, that's true. I really, there, we do know, there's another aspect to it that's also very clear. Uh, we know that there's, um, there's that brain development and judgment and all of those, all those things do make a difference at a certain ages. And 18 is an appropriate one in my view because you, you can, you can join the army. You can do a lot of different things. I think it's a, it's appropriate for you to to have the, the kind of freedom at 18 to do certain things, and the voting age is appropriate for me in that view. I think we should we should be paying attention to that. We now have the um, motor voter out in Oregon, where if you go to get a driver's license, you are immediately in the in the, uh, registered to vote when you become 18. So you get your ballot when you become 18. We get it. Oregon's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jesus. I mean, as if, as if we didn't already get it from, you know, the, the, the trays at the airport in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm kidding. So um, politics is really hard. It's the, it's like the slowest thing in the world sometimes when it comes to making things happen and, and change happen. How do you keep from getting discouraged? when it gets really, really hard. Like, where does your hope come from? Oh, wow. Um, a couple of quick things. One is I would challenge you on how, 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 how much time it takes for politics and just ask you to look at what happens in academia. And if you want to see a uh, slow process, that, that's really there. My wife, who took barely 10 years to get a Ph.D., may agree with you. Yeah, well, I, I, we won't talk about how long it takes to get a Ph.D. <laughs> as long as you don't try to call my my advisor and ask how long it's taking me. Um, but, Fair uh, enough. The fact, the fact is that um, it is slow. 
But you know that is that's how we are. We we, all, we sometimes it actually speeds up in places and surprises folks. Um, it sometimes it actually. I mean, we have a, we have we've seen some huge changes over the last few years that people were convinced would take at least fifty years before we could do that. Uh, and you asked why I why I happen to feel um, hope on this. Uh, I've lived. In, um, in situations where um, it has been a, uh, a huge, no one expected any, any change to take place, um, and we managed to see it. So I am um, I'm one of those eternal optimists because, you know, I, <laughs> I, had, I had my colleagues um, uh, in, in, in high school, my, my fellow students, showing me their junior Ku Klux Klan card. Um, when I was in high school because they wanted to try to intimidate me. Wow. Um, and, and I, you know, and I had people yelling and throwing things at me when I was a kid as well. Uh, those things are not taking place as much right now. Unfortunately, we have uh, a presidential candidate that is encouraging that kind of thing, or, and certainly his followers are. But they, they are considered to be deplorable because of that. And I think that's appropriate. Um, the, the the folks who the folks who are um, who are involved in in making change are making change. We've seen that take place. So I'm I'm eternally optimistic about it because I think we can do it. It's not going to take easy. It's not going to be easy. Uh, but in the time that I've seen in my lifetime, and you know, you've seen the picture of my great grandfather who was 103. Uh, freed slave. That's right. Um, I'll make sure and I'll uh, make sure and put that up on the on the website too. Once this so, goes I mean, he was he was directly involved in things, and and he was uh, he had to struggle with a lot of different issues, and yet he managed to make it through as a as you know 103 and a freed slave. It's not. It's sort of hard not to be optimistic when you can see that take place in one person's lifetime, and in my father's lifetime, in my parents' lifetime. Um, they have managed to go through so much that I can't even imagine, and yet we keep going. So I think we can do it. Your grandfather was 103. Your father is still cranking out slime mold research at 93. You are, man, I don't know, I'm going to say 43 years old. We're going to have a lot of Lou left uh, for well, the foreseeable I future, and it gives me uh, a lot of hope to know that you're at work on this stuff, friend. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the hard work you're doing. When's the election? When can they go and vote for you there after uh, they get out of the airport? <laughs> November 8th is the election, and it should be. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have the endorsement of several, four different uh, parties at this point. And I'm uh, I'm pleased with with that, and uh, so I've got the Democratic nomination, the Independent nomination, the Working Families Party nomination, and the Republican nomination right now. Outstanding. Uh, so I'm I'm pleased with that, and that's so we the, have very few Republicans. I I have the the the, the most Democratic district in the in the state, uh, but I'm I'm pleased that I that people have supported me, and I continue to I think support them. And that's the whole plan. All right. Well, everybody who uh, who has the, the, the capability and the wherewithal should get out and vote for Lou on November 8th. Uh, thanks, Lou. And good luck. Look forward to watching you 
cross into that uh, into that role as state senator. Thank you very much, Davin. You take care of yourself. Okay, man. I'll talk to you soon. So I finished up this talk with Lou, which was great. Um, the issue of race really continued to stick with me throughout, uh, continually uh, through, you know, coverage of the presidential elections and stuff. And, and I just, I had some more that I wanted to talk to Lou about. Uh, it took me a while to get around to talking to him because I'm at the height of college admissions, uh, recruitment seasons. So I'm visiting high schools and going to college fairs and so on and so forth. But um, a few days ago, I caught Lou uh, in the middle of a, Seattle Seahawks game and asked him some questions about race and this political election season in particular. So I'll stop this here and invite you to check out part two. Uh, you know, this is a, it's a really fascinating conversation with Lou finished up with a rather hearty uh, editorial on my part, but it's important for me to share. So thanks for listening to this one. Now go ahead over and Check out part two.